Presenting the Bat Guys Return Podcast Sample. A little background. A Zoom call with two law students on the subject of copyright and trademarks from our unique in-the-trenches experience in the comic book industry was so fun and freewheeling, we realized, hey, this is a podcast. Please note, the audio was taken from the Zoom call, so forgive the occasional glitches. Most important, let us know if you'd like us to produce more episodes on proper microphones, we promise. We appreciate your encouragement. Email batguysreturn at gmail.com. And now, the Bat Guys Return. I was working on a Batman title that was being drawn by the brilliant artist Paul Pope. And he was doing a version of Batman, uh, an alternate version of Batman that took place in the 1920s in Germany. Uh, what's the musical I'm thinking of that takes place then? Cabaret. It was like Batman crossed with Cabaret, if you can picture that. And you can because I sang the theme song from it earlier. Just go back <laughs> a few minutes. And I was so terrified of how off this was. This, this was just such a sideways turn for Batman. And yet I was such a champion of alternate voices coming in and doing interesting things with the character that I kind of hit it. I don't know what I was thinking, but like I said, comics creators have no common sense. So I kind of hid it from everybody until it was in print. Like, what did I think was going to happen when it went into print that I was going to be able to continue hiding it? <laughs> Where's the common sense in that? Anyway, so, uh, so Actually, anyway, Gorf, Paul what Levitz, I, Gorf, Gorf, what I think you were thinking yeah. was that they would hate it enough that they would cancel it no matter how far along it was and how brilliant it was. And I'm not sure you were wrong to think that. Here's the interesting punchline. And <clears throat> Scott is insightful as ever. But I also know where this is going. <laughs> you want to carry it on? No, no. Sorry, I'm sorry. My, my point was, I say that even knowing how it turned out. Okay. Go ahead. Uh, I got a visitor from, I don't remember, he was the executive uh, vice president or the publisher at that time or the president at that time, but he came down to me with the comic book in hand. And I thought, oh boy, you know, it's over. <laughs> it's been nice. And instead he got angry at me for not telling him that we were doing this amazing story that he would have publicized had he only known about it. That is not the reaction that I expected. So it just goes to show you once again, it's a moving target. It's a slippery slope. You just don't know. And ultimately, the best arbiter of all of this is the public. I'm, I'm going to liken it to raising little kids. Many times when you're a parent, you presume a certain level of ignorance or idiocy on your children. You figure they're not capable of handling this or doing this. And yet, if you only loosen up a little bit, and Jennifer's smiling, she's thinking, because hmm. her father, in case you didn't notice by the similar last names, her father is on the line here. <laughs> but if you only give them a little room to explore and to experiment, you'll discover that children are far more capable than you often give them credit for. And I think that that is an apt comparison here. Scott, is that how you remember the story ending? Yeah, that's exactly how I remember the story ending. And I still think you actually made the right call. I think that it was just as likely it would have gotten killed uh, as to, I would have promoted this. Well, you can freaking promote it now. But anyhow, and I say that very much liking 
Paul these days. Very much. No, I think it's just as likely it would have gotten killed. I remember some of our times. They're pretty. I think you made the right call. So, but this I feel is kind of off the copyright trademark. So I got it. I got at least one trademark thing that I think is right to your, right to your question. When we were at DC in the '90s, and maybe it's changed since then, we were not allowed to show the Chrysler building on one of our covers. Like you couldn't have Superman flying past the Chrysler building or Batman jumping off it. And I know this because I remember being told it and being really unhappy because Daredevil downtown at Marvel used the Chrysler building on Daredevil covers all the time to phenomenal artistic effect. They, the Chrysler building, it's like it was designed for comic book covers. It is, it's perfect to have a superhero perching on or diving off of or something. And I was always like, how come they get to do it and we don't? And the reason I was told at the time was because we were part of, at the time, Time Warner AOL. We are a massive corporation. They will sue us and we don't want to be sued. So Marvel feels comfortable rolling the dice because Marvel was self-owned at that point. I think this was pre-Perlman. So, you know, they were, it's not worth it, I guess, was the thinking from the Chrysler Building's trademark holder to sue this little comic book company, but it would be worth it to sue Warner Brothers. And there's there's a certain amount where trademark, again, to my mind, inhibits creativity. Like I get the owner of the trademark gets to decide that a comic book doesn't get to make a profit off of the likeness of the Chrysler building. You know. Uh, but with that, again, it's like anybody can go to New York and look at the Chrysler building. Like, I don't yes. understand why that. You can look at the Chrysler building. You yeah. can take a photo. You can take a photo of yourself in front of the Chrysler building, but you theoretically can't then take that photo of you and make it a commercial offering, right? You can't profit off somebody else's trademark. And I guess the idea of having the Chrysler building on a cover with Batman makes that Batman cover more commercially viable in some way, which I guess I started this argument by saying, yeah, it kind of does. And yet, <laughs> so there is a positive aspect to this. I'm playing devil's advocate again, because it can lead to some interesting creativity. The difference between the DC universe and the Marvel universe is the Marvel universe is basically an amalgam of the real world. Their stories take place in New York City and, and thereabouts, whereas we have... Uh, fictionalized versions of the cities in, I say we, DC Comics. So Metropolis and Gotham. And they, I, who was it, Denny, who pointed this out? Somebody pointed out that Metropolis is New York above about, what, 14th Street? And Gotham is New York below 14th Street. And, it's, and he said, and it's always two in the morning. And it's always two in the morning, right. With uh, 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 R2-B2 uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, skies. Now you're really dating yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's not R2-D2. That's r 2 Who else is going to date him? <laughs> it's okay, true. So I, in Superman comics, for example, when Mike Carlin was the editor, he went wild with creating all these fictional products like soda or cola because he couldn't use Coca-Cola. And I'm, I'm sure it was the Reisler building instead of the Chrysler building. And the fun part was, okay, so we're restricted, but we work in a medium where we have to stay within a box. 
Everything is within panels. That's what we call the boxes in comic books. And some may call that restrictive, but I call a limited palette a really wonderful vessel for infinite creativity. Because, for example, and this we were making fun of the R2B2 thing as being so esoteric. In the old days, printing was so primitive that you couldn't use anything more than very simple colors, which were divided up into their percentages of the combination of the four basic colors, what we call CMYK. Then computers came along and you could use any color under the rainbow. And what happened in my view is that many technicians became colorists and we lost a lot of the artistry of coloring. And that's just a long way around saying when you didn't limit your palette, you had something that was less artistic. You had in, in, a, in a very perverse way or in a counterintuitive way, you had less creativity because you had more options. By having fewer options, you're forced to be more creative. I'll give you another example in the world of comedy. There are comedians like Jerry Seinfeld, for example, that won't work blue, which means that they won't use swear words, but keep everything clean. It's not that Jerry Seinfeld doesn't swear. He probably swears up a blue streak. But he feels like if I create a limited palette and work within that box, then my work will be stronger for it. So there's something to be said for the limitation of copyright in that way, how it promotes creativity. See, I like that, but I would say that your argument about the limited palette and coloring, yeah, and coloring got exponentially better after unlimited the palette was opened unlimitedly yes the next five years the first five years of photoshop and comics not good the last 10 years of, of comic books when they have literally millions of colors available to them is by leaps and bounds to my eye the best coloring has ever looked in comics to the point where it's almost not even the same thing sometimes and i would say very rarely in fact i know we're getting a little bit off topic but that's because when you look at mark chiarello coloring and the way that he stows, or, or Bill Watterson from uh, Calvin and Hobbes, how they so strategically pick their colors. There's an artistry in that, that when you combine it with the technology it can be wonderful, but when you strip away that artistry and you're just left with the technician, the, the technical stuff, it's really ugly. And I'll give you another example that gets back to uh, copyright and trademark. If you look at the Star Wars comics that recently Marvel has been publishing, you realize that there is an incredible verisimilitude in the way the characters are portrayed. And that's because they're taking a library of stock photos from the movies, basically movie stills of the actors, and they are mapping them onto the comic book drawings so that the characters look as close to the original characters as possible. For some people, that could be very pleasing. For others, it can feel like the uncanny valley in bad mimicry where you're losing the, the artistic nature of comics, where you want to do something that is a creative derivative of the original. Otherwise, why don't you just take the photo and publish the photo? I feel like this is saying correctly that somebody graduating from the Hart School of Music in 2022 is like whoever the least good graduate from the Hart School of Music uh, in their keyboard division is a better pianist than anyone who had ever played before 1950. That's almost certainly true from a technical point of view. And your 
going to say, yeah, but do any of them compose like Bach? Well, no, they don't. So, yes, you're right. Mark Chiarello using five colors is better than 99.9% .9 of colorists ever. But the comics produced in the last 10, 10 years, the level of coloring on that is better than all but maybe a few dozen comics from the first 75 years. But this is really off the trademark. So <laughs> let me. Let I just me, enjoy you saying "but" because it brings me back to that hero from Vertigo. But anyway, gives you gives you those gives you the tingles, the Peter tingles. You, you um, said, I thought you said, I thought you said the shingles. Oh, I don't talk about the shingles. Nice. <laughs> right. Uh, that that this isn't the podcast with those stories. Yes. No. Uh, okay. So where are we? Okay. So. Wait, you're about you guys definitely would like to wrap up. Right. No, you, you, you said but. You were about to rebut yourself one more time. Uh, I am going to get Wait, wait, some... but I'm really, really curious where you were going to go with that. I apologize. You said the, um, the comics from the past 10 years are better than the probably all but 75 comics from the first 50 years. And then you were about to say but. And then I said but we're really getting off the, the topic of copyright and trademark. Oh, okay. Sorry. I was like, are we about to have a fight right now? No. Uh, oh this, God, is where, no. this is where you want. This is the, the grist for the podcast. No, this is the stuff you want. This is First the of all, drama. <laughs> this, is a well, this, is the, this is a podcast about comic creation and, and coloring and, and uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Modern, no, no. modern techniques versus ancient techniques. This is not trademark and copyright. <laughs> whenever, whenever the three of us get together we always disagree with like this until finally Gorf acknowledges that I'm right so it's just this is just standard that's right uh, <laughs> no the, my purpose in, in that seeming digression was to point out that the limitation the endless limitation of copyright and trademark does have some fringe benefits and the limited palette nature of creativity is one of them Right. And here's my rebuttal to your rebuttal to my rebuttal to your rebuttal, which is Robert Frost refused to write free verse. He would use established poetic forms, including he would use blank verse, but not free verse, because I think he's the one who compared it to playing tennis without a net. That you had to have certain boundaries, limitations, walls, whatever, to create great art. If there weren't wasn't weren't some sort of structure within which you had to work, the art was not going to be great. My point is, but he didn't need to have the law telling him that. He was able to just do it himself. So I see your point about Soder Cola and these other brands and stuff that were created because of trademark copyright. I would argue you don't need that. An artist doesn't actually require to be legally bound in order to decide that he or she will work within some other predetermined boundaries than the law. And Scott is right, because I think if there is <laughs> if there is a through Hold line, on. Scott is yeah, right. If, right. If there's a through Come line off there, <laughs> everything that we're talking about, it's that ultimately a free society is going to ultimately be the best arbiter of what deserves to exist. And anytime we try to, to limit it, well, I'm not saying that we should be uh, anarchic, 
But I'm saying that anytime we try to limit it unnecessarily, we end up going off the rails. Uh, a liberal society, uh, as in a liberal arts society, needs that freedom of expression and that freedom of derivation. And as Scott pointed out earlier, we've gone so far uh, afield of where copyright and trademark started and what its original intention was that we're due for a corrective. And we've had a number of experiences of our own, in addition to being editors and we're creators, of course, we're writers, we're, we're uh, entrepreneurs in terms of creating intellectual properties. And boy, how many times have we created, come up with ideas, we come up with characters, whole concepts, and you know, within a few years, while it's sitting in our vault or while we're trying to interest somebody in it, you know, we find out somebody else came up with the same idea independently and it's being made into a new movie, a new animated series, a new animated feature, whatever, and create something that you've all of a sudden find out is has a lot in common with something that was created by somebody a few years ago or 10 years ago. And all of a sudden they could be suing you thinking that you ripped it off from them when you came up with it totally independently. But you know, Darren, you go ahead. Go they did. They did rip us off. <laughs> I mean, it's happened numerous times. I, you know, Num numerous times. Numerous but all joking times. aside, I mean, you and I pitched Star Trek back in the day in the nineties, right? Uh, or maybe it was the OOs, probably because we were on staff in the nineties. And Star Trek used to have an open pitch policy where anybody could send in an idea a script, and you sign a waiver, obviously. But it was very risky for them. But they found new writers that way, new stories that way. And the reason there was such a proliferation of creativity in the Star Trek franchise in the 90s was in great part due to this open pitch policy where anybody had an open door to submit an idea. And by the way, the new iteration of Star Trek does not have this policy. And it's because, as Scott was telling us, it's just too fraught. And we're losing something as a result. More often, again, in our experience is we come up with an idea that, you know, we're fairly sure is is original. And sometimes shortly thereafter, someone else independently, I mean, nobody's, you know, listening in on our conversations, but somebody else independently. Don't know that. Well, we don't know that, but the NSA is totally listening. in. <laughs> <laughs> but we all of a sudden see that something's in the works at this comic company or this movie studio or this animation studio that has a lot of similarities to something we came up with. And it's just independent creative, you know, creators coming up with things that are similar and just one, one studio beating, you know, another group to the punch. I mean, it, it happens, I'm sure in the industry every day, every week, I'm sure. It, 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 what, the trick to being an effective creator is that you have to draw upon the zeitgeist, but see two or three years ahead. If you can do that, then you're going to succeed because I guarantee you, and I say this all the time, if I'm thinking of it, 15 other people are thinking of it too. It's inevitable, but it's only execution. So what can you do with it that perhaps someone else is not thinking about? And then hopefully protect your idea. Now, it, I've, I've had the experience of pitching in Hollywood, and it's a funny thing because on the one hand, you want to protect your ideas. You feel like, well, if I tell this to an executive, they're going to maybe run with my idea and not pay me for it. Mm -hmm. But the catch-22 is you need to be able to tell your idea in order to make something happen, but you need to make something happen in order to be able to tell your idea. And 
you just can't win unless you take a risk. And you have to be comfortable knowing that with creativity comes great responsibility. Thank you. <laughs> and there you go. A taste of the Bat Guys Return podcast. If you'd like us to produce more episodes featuring the comics industry and craft, our inside stories, and many special guests, please email us your encouragement at batguysreturn at gmail.com. Same Bat Guys Return time, same Bat Guys Return channel. And remember, Scott is always right.